Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring the debate raging between dark matter theorists and modified Newtonian dynamics, or MOND theorists. The debate centres around two competing theories which are proposed to explain the discrepancies between the observed gravitational effects in the universe and the predictions made by Newton's laws of gravity and general relativity. There are particular issues in the way that galaxies behave. For example, the rotation curves of galaxies are faster than you would expect. Dark matter theory suggests that the missing mass causing these gravitational anomalies is due to this unseen form of matter. Dark matter doesn't emit, absorb or reflect light, meaning it's invisible and detectable only through its gravitational effects. Dark matter is thought to make up around 27% of the universe's mass energy content. MOND, on the other hand, suggests that these discrepancies can be explained without invoking unseen matter. Proponents of MOND propose modifications to Newton's laws of motion and gravity at very low accelerations, which are typical of the conditions found at the outer regions of galaxies. According to MOND, the gravitational force behaves differently at these low accelerations of galactical rotation curves without requiring the unseen dark matter. In the astronomical community, there is something of a tribal debate about it. On the Physics World website, there's the first of three features by Keith Cooper exploring this topic, Cosmic Combat Delving into the Battle Between Dark Matter and Modified Gravity. Having read that article, I wanted to find out more. So in this podcast, we'll hear from two researchers, one who's moved from the Mond camp to the Dark Matter camp, and first, Professor Stacy McGaw, who moved from Dark Matter to be a supporter of Mond. I am uh, on the faculty at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States. Uh, I work on galaxies and cosmology and and those things have sort of brought me to be interested in the dark matter problem and and the modified Newtonian dynamics of Milgram. So in um, both of those uh, astronomical objects I mentioned, galaxies and cosmology, you find that things don't add up. What you see is not what you get in the sense that if you use the law of gravity as taught to us by Newton and Einstein, um, applied to the visible matter, uh, things don't work out. In galaxies, stars and gas are orbiting faster than one would predict. Um, The cosmology as a whole um, doesn't really add up unless you have both some extra mass and and for that matter, some extra uh, dark energy. Uh, And in particular, in the case of cosmology, we know uh, from the early universe that the abundances of light elements, um, the isotopes of hydrogen, uh, helium, and lithium, uh, we can understand that as uh, the universe having passed through uh, a a phase in which it was one giant nuclear reactor and we get the uh, observed elemental abundance of light for a particular density of uh, baryons, neutrons and protons, normal matter that make up most of the mass. Uh, And that is maybe 5% of the critical density, which is the over-under between expanding forever or recollapsing. 
And yet, if we go out as astronomers and move, measure how things move in large scales and try to estimate the total gravitating mass density, uh, then it's much bigger than that uh, density of normal matter. Uh, so we infer that there is extra mass in both kinds of systems and that mass is not visible to us and it cannot have participated in this uh, early Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So we infer that it is some kind of new particle outside of the standard model of particle physics. So where does the modified Newton dynamics come into this? So, um, so that, that background about the dark matter is sort of where I came to the problem from and where I, where I think most uh, scientists come to it. Um, but I was mostly interested in those astronomical objects, in particular a class of things called low surface brightness galaxies, which uh, when I was a young scientist were, were new and not much was known about them. Uh, and I, and so a low surface brightness galaxy is just, a, a, if you think of a pretty spiral galaxy, it's, it's just take that and stretch it out. It uh, has a much lower average surface density of stars. Um, and so it's not as pretty, but still a galaxy. And so um, I had ideas about how those uh, would form in terms of dark matter. Other people did too, and um, none of those ideas proved correct. And so in studying those things, I, I really got concerned about whether we understood dark matter or if it could even explain these galaxies. And, and that's a long story because one doesn't consider uh, something as radical as the uh, modification of gravity, the, the so-called modified Newtonian dynamics, until you're really convinced that there's a problem with the dark matter picture. Um, and I became aware of that, or I become concerned for the, the dark matter um, before I became aware that, that anybody had really even hypothesized that. Um, at the time, I was a postdoc in Cambridge, and um, uh, Maudie Milgram, who was the person who hypothesized the modified dynamics, happened to come by. Uh, so it was a sort of a chance meeting in Middle Earth, as it were. And, and at a critical time, when I was um, already concerned about whether the dark matter picture was viable, um, and like I say, there's a huge backstory just to that statement, but I'd gotten worried about it. Um, nevertheless, I was still convinced that that had to be the case. And so when I saw his talk advertised on a poster, uh, something about modified gravity, I was like, oh, who wants to hear that nonsense? It can't possibly be right. Um, and so I did go anyway and uh, he basically, not knowing who I was or what I did, derived in a few lines on the board um, a prediction for what low surface brightness galaxies should do in his modified dynamics. Uh, that was exactly what I was observing and uh, was part of what had caused me deep concern for whether or not uh, we could explain it with dark matter. And it was basically a fine tuning problem. So, um, what the modified dynamics hypothesize is that rather than there being a whole lot of dark matter in the universe, that all the discrepancies that we observe 
are because Newton and Einstein didn't teach us everything. And so there is a change to the force law. Um, and in his hypothesis, this change happens at a particular acceleration scale. Um, that's already kind of hard to wrap our heads around because, of course, people uh, early on when, when the dark matter problem became obvious, um, people did think, well, maybe it's a change in gravity. Uh, and the first thing our brains think of is size, right? Cosmic scales are huge. The galaxy is huge. The solar system is huge, but it's tiny compared to those other things. So it's easy uh, to imagine that, okay, Newton's inverse square law and, and Einstein's additions to it work perfectly in the solar system, but maybe when you get to the much, much bigger scales of galaxies, some intermediate scale there, the, the force law changes. Um, that does not work. Um, you, you cannot make a, a length scale dependent modification uh, to the law of gravity and, and fit it to all the data. Um, so people pretty much gave up on that pretty quickly, but, but Milgram, I guess he suggested, well, there are other scales, and the one that seems to work is this very low acceleration scale. Um, and so he had hypothesized, um, basically he wanted to cook up a theory that made rotation curves flat, which was the, the hot topic at the time. Uh, but once you do that, once you write down a, a modified force law, it's, it's an equation and, and you're stuck with it and it makes lots of predictions. And um, acceleration follows from surface density. So I had inadvertently done the perfect um, experiment to test this theory. I didn't know about the theory when I, I, was, I was interested in the surface brightness galaxies, um, but they were low surface density, and so that meant low acceleration, so they were strong tests of uh, his theory. And in fact, after uh, I, hearing his talk, I went back and read his original papers, and I found a, a quote in there that said, low surface brightness galaxies will provide particularly strong tests. And I was like, wow, I have now the data to falsify this stupid theory. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my first thought, because I was coming at it from this dark matter picture where that had to be true. And even though I was already worried about whether it, whether it could work or not, I still assumed that this, this strange theory had to be wrong. Um, now, the concerns I had were because of the fine tuning. And again, a long story short, that fine-tuning comes about because galaxies uh, turn out to obey this modified force law that Milgram wrote down, and not just in terms of having flat rotation curves, but in being able to map the details of the observed mass distribution to the kinematics, that is, how the entire shape of the rotation curves was, how, how stars and gas moved in galaxies. Um, and so what I said before is that, you know, we have the dark matter problem because what we see is not what you get, um, but it is in this modified force law. Um, and what since then is, you know, 20 years of hard work, but um, we've been able to show that that's true empirically in galaxies um, without reference to, to Milgram's particular theory, that if you measure the mass distribution uh, of the stuff you can see, then it maps uh, directly to the total kinematics, whether that's dark matter or this modified gravity or something else we have not yet dreamt up, 
Uh, and that's a critical part of understanding what's going on that is unanticipated in dark matter theory and as yet not satisfactorily explained by it. We'll hear much more from Stacy later in the podcast. But while Professor McGaw has moved from studying dark matter towards Mond, Dr. Idrin Elbanik has moved in the other direction. So uh, I'm a postdoc in the uh, Department of uh, Physics and Astronomy at St. Andrews. Um, I work on, uh, right now I work on testing the idea that we're living in a local under density or void, and this could um, perhaps solve the Hubble tension in cosmology. Um, but originally, this this postdoc was about uh, implementing the um, wide binary test of gravity at low accelerations, um, and that took uh, first a couple of years. Um, and that's something I've been working on for much longer: is the idea of Milgrovian dynamics or MOND. Um, which uh, is about um, galaxy rotation curves perhaps being understandable without any dark matter at all. You've changed your mind, right, as a result of the evidence. So if, if I just work outwards on from the smaller scales to the larger ones, and that, that I think will make most sense. So uh, the first thing, um, well, uh, the, the smaller scale thing... Uh, failure was with regard to the solar system ephemerides. So um, because Mond's an acceleration-dependent sort of theory, um, the deviation from Newtonian mechanics sets in at only about a tenth of a light year for an individual star. Uh, it, it's, yeah, uh, which is still very far compared to all the planets. But the thing is, um, it's not that much further out than uh, the gas giants. It's like 7,000 asteroidal units, um, whereas uh, in particular Saturn's at 10 asteroidal units. Um, so you could imagine that if you're able to make very precise measurements, you might be able to notice some, some Mond effects. Um, and it turns out that uh, a certain anomaly is predicted in Mond, um, which uh, is inconsistent with the observations at nine sigma confidence. Um, this is based on uh, precise uh, radar pulses being sent to the Cassini spacecraft with orbited Saturn for many years and finding exactly the distance between Earth and Saturn, uh, which basically is uh, constraining the Sun-Saturn distance. Um, so yeah, we uh, that um, they, there was a very detailed study on this recently looking at different possible adjustments to the MON uh, theoretical parameters and getting the consistency between rotation curves and solar system ephemerides. And yeah, this, this can't be done. Um, this uh, um, the, the other thing um, that came up, uh, so I'll talk about the wide binaries last because that's more complicated. But the other thing that came up was the uh, galaxy clusters. Um, galaxy clusters, um, of course, uh, were uh, already problematic in the sense that they needed extra mass. Uh, but uh, this argument didn't really convince anybody because general relativity also requires galaxy clusters of extra mass. So or neutron gravity can't work either. In, but uh, the thing is, um, g- galaxy clusters have less gravity than 
predicted by Mond in their outskirts. Uh, and that's only become clear recently because we've sort of got observations that extend out further. But uh, there have been a few studies now which show that essentially galaxy clusters seem to follow the inverse square law even in the low acceleration regime. So until recently, we didn't have data that went sufficiently far out from a cluster to get into the low acceleration regime. But now we do. And it's clear that they're following the inverse square law. Um, not only that, but they're following the inverse square law with, uh, with uh, but the wrong sort of normalization, if you will. So they're following it uh, as if the galaxy cluster has six times as much mass as the visible. Um, however, in the standard cosmological paradigm, that makes total sense because it's supposed to be five times as much dark matter as the visible. Um, so uh, in the outskirts of galaxy clusters, which are, by the way, so far out that um, there a mass enclosed interior to that radius, uh, it, I mean, the proportions of baryons to, to dark matter should be the same as the cosmic one. Um, it's not realistic for baryons to have been blown out of a whole cluster, uh, even though for individual galaxies that could happen. Um, but for a whole cluster, it's unrealistic. So, so it is always known that galaxy clusters uh, should get sort of around this uh, baryonic feedback issue if you had measurements far out, which recently became available. Um, the other thing to realize, of course, is that because the inverse square law, even if the normalization is higher, uh, ultimately, the inverse square law will end up like giving less gravity than the sort of inverse distance law prediction in Mond. Um, so because of this, um, ultimately, it, it recently it's become clear that there's less gravity in the outskirts than, than Mond predicts just on the basis of the visible mass. But because you also need to add a lot of dark matter even in Mond to explain the central regions, um, it's clear that Mond substantially over predicts the gravity in the outskirts. And that cannot be uh, reconciled because you'd have to add like negative uh, dark matter for that to work. H historically, actually, the cluster result came first and then the white binary result and then the solar system one, uh, in case people are wondering. Um, but um, so of course, they're all in a very short uh, period. Um, but uh, regarding the white binary results, um, so this is look at an intermediate scale of uh, about um, 0.1 uh light years uh the idea here is that um binary stars uh with reasonably wide separations um in the solar neighborhood uh should orbit around each other 20 percent faster than the newtonian expectation uh, if mont is correct um so uh that's um quite a lot compared to the planetary separations but it's much smaller than the typical separations be between stars uh, so there's uh, plenty of um, wide binaries. Uh, in fact, the nearest star to the sun is actually itself part of a wide binary. Um, so these are not that um, rare. The European Space Agency's Gaia mission has been surveying the stars and giving much more precise data than has ever been available before. Idrinil and his colleagues have turned to that data. So uh, what we did is we built like a detailed sort of statistical model for wide binaries, which uh, I've been working on and off towards since like uh, late 2017, um, calculating the in detail the MOND predictions for how wide binary orbits should behave in MOND, also in the Newtonian case. Uh, then we had to add um, the possibility of a third star orbiting one of the two stars in the binary, and actually a fourth star, because there could be a closed binary around both of the stars in the wide binary. Uh, but these would be on, on very short orbits, and you could just focus on the motion of the 
sort of close binary as a whole uh, around the more distant, like wide binary companion. Um, and this only in the cases where you're not actually detecting the closed binary, because if you were, then that would be removed from the sample anyway. Um, but still, um, by doing a very detailed analysis, so we, we fixed the uh, analysis protocol as much as possible in advance of getting the actual data. Um, it, we posted like a detailed like uh, blueprint for how the test should be done in autumn 2021. Um, and we were able to more or less prepare for the actual data because there were previous guide data releases which weren't quite accurate enough. Uh, and these more or less showed us like how to get how to do the analysis. Um, the actual analysis uh, was sort of something we did as quickly as possible after the guide data release three came out in June, 2022. Uh, and I explained to the other authors that we would most likely have clear results by the end of the year. Um, that, that actually turned out to be the case. So on 5th November, we found out that uh, there was an approximately 20 sigma failure of MON, um, but the observations were consistent with the Newtonian uh, prediction within one or two standard deviations. Um, so th that was then written up uh, subsequently, and uh, that's been published uh, recently. Um, so there were uh, there was also another study by a um, couple of researchers in Queen Mary that uh, were co-authors on, on my paper. But before I did that, they managed to publish their own, like, much faster, uh, sorry, much simpler and, and much faster analysis, um, which should have um, got to the... Uh, it, it should have captured the physics, but uh, it, effectively, it's like calling someone on a, on a brick phone instead of like a smartphone. It'll probably still work, um, but it's it's a bit less uh, ideal. Um, so it's, essentially, what I did is we explored the parameter space much more thoroughly, whereas they just found like what was like, the best model. Um, but but still, this was sufficient to see that there was a very strong preference for uh, Newtonian gravity over Mond. Um, that's why my results were not uh, completely surprising, um, but nonetheless, it wasn't clear until we did the analysis uh, uh, that it, we would actually get the same results. It's always a possibility that it would somehow be different, um, but no, it, it's all quite consistent. Um, we also like um, found out uh, the main problem with some other groups that claimed there was actually a signal in the white binary test that looks like bond. Um, we borrowed the data set from them and uh, we identified like what the problem was. And that's explained in um, one of the sections in a paper, which is um, uh, titled what comparison with other, uh, you know, implementations of the white binary test. So, yeah, um, the, uh, it's, it's very clear that white binaries are Newtonian uh, to quite high precision, about like a percent or so. Uh, and that's why the MON prediction is completely incompatible with the observations. Um, it's also totally in line with the solar system result. If you were to as believe Mond is correct uh, and ignore all the rotation curve results, but just um, believe the Cassini radio tracking result, that would uh, automatically show that wide binaries need to be Newtonian um, to like within a percent or so. Um, that wouldn't by itself disprove Mond in that case. That would simply prove that wide binaries need to be close to Newtonian. Um, but then if you combine it with rotation curve results, um, then you would see uh, the failure of, of MOND. Um, yeah. So it's these three failures, like essentially 
like in, in context, what that means is you can't extend Mon to even slightly smaller or larger scales than the galaxy regimes for which it was designed. Okay, but so you were previously a proponent of? I mean, you were looking at it. I, I, tell me how it feels to you when you start looking at, it, at something like that and you go, oh, hang on. Well, this was quite a shock when we found out like uh, that it, it didn't fit the wide binary test. The, the thing is, like, uh, because I, I knew sort of the risk of moral hazards was very high, that's why we uh, tried to take mitigating measures, you know. So we'd agreed, like, um, so basically there's a gravity law parameter in the code, which is like zero for Newton and one for mod. But it's not like an integer, it's a floating thing. So it, it, it could have values between minus two and plus uh, four, uh, plus 3.6. So uh, what we decided in advance was basically either it would give zero or it would give one. Any other value would suggest this something not quite right with the analysis. Also, we agreed on what some kind of variations to the analysis that should be done. And obviously, if the result um, more or less holds up when we change these assumptions, um, that would be good. Uh, then some other authors suggested some other like less complicated, uh, simple sort of ways of looking at the data, which should also clarify if Newtonian mechanics is preferred or, or if Mond is preferred. Um, and all these things gave very consistent results. So um, yeah, for, in terms of how it felt like, uh, yeah, this this was quite bad. <laughs> um, I mean, there's uh, no way to, to describe it any other way. This was, um, yeah, especially in the scenario where uh, it wasn't really clear what uh, I would work on next. And uh, um, But more generally, like, um, because uh, it seemed likely that the other problems would come and uh yeah that th this was a very bad situation yeah. is that kind of like an overnight thing i mean how long was it in that process before you were sort of going okay i've really got to start no no it's, it's basically an overnight thing on the 5th of november 2022 really okay did you sleep well that night um well, I, I i i can't remember like uh but basically basically um because we'd agreed like the all the um analysis procedures in advance and there was a very clear result um then um there was um essentially no way around it um it was just very precisely on the newtonian value uh rather than the mond one in principle any other value could have arisen uh, theoretically um like if there were problems of some sort with the test or, or if something else was going on um but um in that scenario, uh, why the code just sort of prefers the, the Newtonian result, um, especially given there were some previous hints that the outcome would be Newtonian. Um, because of this, um, yeah, there, there wasn't really any uh, way to, like, it, it was clear at that point that uh, it, it, this, this couldn't have been, the Mon couldn't have been correct. Clearly, I wanted to know Stacy's response. To this study of the binary stars from the Gaia data. Okay, so let me provide some broader context because, like I said, my first thought was this this stupid theory I will falsify. And then when I actually went through the predictions, it was like check, 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 check. And 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 I had corroborated all the predictions that Milgram had made while falsifying my own. I had my own dark matter-based theory, and it was wrong. It did not do the right thing. And so, you know, what was I supposed to say? That, that he was wrong? Um, but there are lots and lots of other things besides individual galaxies. So I spent 
several years reviewing all the evidence, and I mean all the evidence, I did a tremendous amount of, of work about this. Um, and for the most part, not all of it, but for the most part, all the systems in which we inferred dark matter, Mond worked perfectly well, sometimes better. Um, and I would say, in fact, well, I had been working really hard to explain my way out of the hole I had dug with the data in terms of dark matter. And as soon as I allowed myself to think of all these problems in terms of Mond, I found I was working less hard. And so what I found at the time, and this was the 90s, basically, um, and I've reviewed it many times since then, so the statement still holds, that you can explain maybe 80% of the data with MON, depending on how you want to define uh, percentages. And it really depends on how you choose to weigh the various lines of evidence. And so the other 20% just didn't work. And the big thing that didn't work at the time was clusters of galaxies. Um, and that's, that's still true. Um, and that, you know, that gives me concern about whether or not it can be true. But what I don't accept is that we have to automatically default to dark matter. It just was the first thing we thought of. Um, and we do have to understand why Mond gets so many predictions right, even if it's wrong as a theory. And we're not really engaging with that as a community. Um, most people seem to retain the attitude that I had that we know it's dark matter, this theory has to be wrong, and we just grasp at the first straw to say, it's wrong, um, and then never think about it again. Um, so Invernil is not one of those people. Um, he took it very seriously, long very seriously from the beginning, and he constructed a, a test which should be um, decisive, and that's to do with wide binaries. Basically hunt through the Gaia database, identify pairs of stars that are, are wide binary candidates, measure their motions, also with Gaia, and see if you can see a statistical signal. Basically, you should see an enhancement of orbital velocities relative to the Newtonian case. Um, and Indrinil saw nothing. So he, you know, and, and I think he went into it expecting to see it, um, and that this would prove Mond, and in fact, he, he found the opposite, so he, he correctly said, no, that doesn't work. Whether or not that amounts to a falsification uh, depends on what I said before. It depends on how you weigh all the different lines of evidence. If you put 100% of the weight onto uh, Indranil's experiment, then yeah, it's a falsification. If you put 100% of the weight on the experiment I did long ago on low surface brightness galaxies, it's as close to a confirmation as you'll ever get. And a refutation of dark matter? So Mond, I said, is binary. It either works or it doesn't. And it works way more often than it should if it's wrong. Um, dark matter isn't like that. We often do not have a well-defined prediction that comes out of it. It's more of an inference. So we see things going wrong there. So there's some dark matter. Okay, well, how much? How much should there be? What do you actually expect? Um, and if you're only talking about it at the level of, oh, there is a discrepancy from what we see, so there's, we infer there's some dark matter, it always works. Um, if you actually try to predict something, 
then it goes badly wrong in a lot of cases. And one thing that you really do not predict is that galaxies should look like Mond. Um, basically, if you tried to build dark matter models and you have a Newtonian um, collection of stars and a Newtonian dark matter halo, and you don't know what the mass distribution of that halo is. So you have to make some assumptions in order to try to predict something and build a model. And you can make a whole bunch of assumptions. And what you find is that there is this enormous parameter space of what galaxies and, and other systems might plausibly do when you have both luminous stuff and dark matter mixed together. In MON, there's only one thing it can do. It has to follow this force law that was written down. And for some reason, nature always seems to be plucking this Mondian uh, appearance out of a uh, dark matter universe, if that's how the universe works. And that's, uh, you know, in a sort of a Bayesian statistical sense, that's just completely improbable. It should never happen because there are all these other possibilities. Um, and the only way it happens in that conventional dark matter context is if you make it so, right? And so there are lots of models out there where after the fact, I've told them, okay, the data do this. And then the modelers are like, oh yeah, I can do that. But they never did it in advance and they can't actually use that to predict anything. Whereas MOND, I can take and look at a galaxy and say, okay, I measured the mass distribution. I can predict what the motions will be. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm correct. Um, and I'm more interested in that nine times out of 10 than I am out of the one, you know, their astronomical data are goofy. There are always some weird cases. Now, Indranil found the opposite with wide binaries, and I take that very seriously. Um, so maybe that is informing us about the deeper theory, not necessarily that Mond is wrong, but we know it's not complete as a theory. And so maybe there's some theory development to be done there. Um, but it's, it's a little worse than that, in that there is as yet no consensus on the wide binaries. So um, both Xavier Hernandez and independently uh, Kaihu Kai have done the same experiments with Gaia, basically the same data looking for wide binaries. And they both claim to see a Mond-like effect. And so where Indranil doesn't see it and rules it out, they say they do see it and must have it. And I don't know who to believe. If you don't can't sort it, how can anybody else know what the answer is? How, how can anybody look at this and go, oh, well, that's what's going on? Well, I think it's, like I say, I... Let me step back. There have been controversies like this in astronomy since its inception. Um, in modern times, we now have the Hubble tension, right? Is it 67 or 73? Um, when I was young, that was, well, is it 50 or is it 100? And um, it's really hard to sort through that sort of thing. It took decades to solve the first one. It may take as long to solve the new one. Um, and the ideal way to do this is for all the principles to get together, set and agreed rules that they're all going to play by, and then compare data, take notes, and agree that they've all come to the same answer uh, in the proper way. And, and then somebody has to admit they're wrong. Um, that is the sticking point. Very few people are willing to do that. Um, 
And, and, you know, I would say I would do that. I had a prediction. I tried hard to fudge it, and I had to admit that it was just wrong. I, what I predicted for low-surface brightness galaxies, specifically that they would shift off of the Tully-Fisher relation, that didn't happen. Um, and so, you know, I would prefer that they sort it out among themselves. Um, now. But, but hang on, isn't that what peer review does? I mean, isn't that essentially what it's <laughs> Oh, oh my. Um, in principle, yes. In practice, um, we are all people doing these things and we bring our own baggage to the reviewing process. And um, I've been on both sides of that many, many times and I've seen all sorts of strange going. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bit like, I think it was Churchill, right? The, peer review is, is the worst system uh, except for every other, right? I mean, you need some method um, to, to, to review what goes into a journals and what counts and what qualifies. Uh, and that is the best method that we have, but it's certainly not perfect. Um, and you have these controversies because people, um, you know, are willing to accept publication. In fact, you know, for astronomy, the, the acceptance rates of most astronomy journals, the good ones, are pretty high. Um, and part of that is because we have a long history that is informed by exactly these kinds of controversies. So, you know, I have many times gotten a manuscript to review where I'm like, I don't believe this, but, but I could be wrong. And so if, um, you know, the, the authors make a good case and they maybe have a kind of data that I haven't seen before, then I will usually recommend that for publication, even if I seriously doubt it. And of course, I will explain that in my report and there are some back and forth and sometimes you can get people to moderate what they say and sometimes not. Um, and it's pretty rare, though it does happen when you can when you get a paper that is oh, this is just wrong, um, and and even then sometimes they get published because of this long history of getting things wrong. Um, I can think of cases where papers I think should not have been published did get published. I cannot think of any case. Um, and I've done hundreds of these at this point. I can't think of any case where a paper that was really good did not eventually get published. I can think of cases where uh, it had to be shopped around to different journals um, before it got accepted. That's interesting. Has it always been like that? You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the only people submitting papers to astronomy journals were astronomers. It was a modest-sized community. If you didn't know people, you knew of them. And so there was a basic presumption that papers were being submitted in good faith. Um, they at least tried, right, <laughs> even if they got it wrong. Um, that's not really true today. There's a, a whole bunch of predatory journals. Um, there are people, usually physicists, uh, people trained mostly as particle physicists, who suddenly think they're qualified to do astronomy writing papers that make some of the basic mistakes that the astronomical community made 50 years ago. And you point these out as a reviewer and they're like, oh, 
I've never heard of that, so it can't possibly be right. It's like, no, no, really, we've been through this before. You're, you're making an obvious mistake. Um, but the editors are also physicists who never heard of whatever that issue is, and so it gets published anyway. Um, and uh, some of these papers are not even offered in good faith, um, and there's a range of ways in which that happens. One is just ignorance of the history of the field. And so it's like, oh, you, you really missed a huge section of the literature. And if you're trained as a physicist, you don't even know what journals to look those up in. So it can be an honest mistake, um, but it is a mistake. And um, there are also people, especially on this subject of, of the modified dynamics, um, you know, if you're a particle physicist who think you're going to get a Nobel Prize for discovering a dark matter particle, you know, you do not want to hear that there's some other solution. Uh, you just don't. Uh. But isn't that true of if you think you're going to get a Nobel Prize for proving Mond that you wouldn't want to? I don't think anybody's going to get a Nobel Prize for that. Um, not anytime soon anyway. Um, and and I, I, I laugh at that because I very consciously chose to report what I thought was true in the data, knowing full well that I would suffer a social penalty for doing so. Uh, and had I realized how steep that social cost would be, I might not have done it. And a lot of people choose not to. Um, so it's, it's funny, I have conversations with people and they will say different things sometimes in private than they do publicly um, because it's a controversial issue and they don't want to be seen to be on the wrong side of that. Um, so I may be wrong, but I'm, I'm certainly being honest about it. And that's why I say I don't know what the Y binaries are teaching us. I know that Indranil is convinced that he's disproved Mond, and I know he has made an honest attempt at doing that. I just don't know if it's right. <laughs> I asked Dr. Adrian Albanik if he was surprised that people were still looking at Mond as a possibility. Well, uh, the thing is, um, you you can try to circumvent the falsification by changing the uh, how, how the theory works. I'm not surprised that there'd be some people working on it. First of all, like, one has to understand, people who've worked on it for many decades would, in any case, not easily give it up. Um, but more importantly... Um, I would say it does work well in the rotation curve, uh, to, to predict galaxy rotation curves. Um, and uh, in our case, for example, uh, when we do the cosmology, um, we often rely on sort of calculations that use MON, but as a, a proxy for what could happen if gravity was enhanced in some way, uh, just to see what that kind, how that kind of simulation might differ even though by now it's clear that the extent of any possible modification to gravity is much smaller than Bond gives, uh, but it, it's uh, helpful as a sort of an extreme sort of case. Um, but in terms of people working on Mond, uh, there's actually much fewer people working on Mond now in, in terms of doing like numerical Mond simulations. Uh, a lot of the people working on this in Bond uh, have left. Uh, that's just because of the PhDs finishing. But the thing is like, it's not the, the high new PhD students to work on Mond. Um, so uh, that, that's a sort of thing. And uh, certainly there aren't very many postdocs working on Mond. Um, at the postdoc stage, especially, you'd have to write like specific grant proposals and this can't really, it's not really investable uh, at the moment. Uh, obviously, I'm not entirely sure if it, if it will be in the future, but um, that seems very unlikely. 
but certainly right now it's it's not um so yeah there's also much fewer in terms of early career researchers working on mon there's very few there's there's people who already have tenure have a lot of free time and can afford to work on mon regardless of what other people think in terms of people who actually have to write a grant to work on mon uh you did, had that in the past but uh you don't really have that now apart from um obviously you know a handful of people who got grants before it was falsified and then they're still working that's a one of the exceptions more for midranil soon but let's go back to my conversation with professor stacy mcgore but if it is and he's disproven bond for the wide binaries does that does that mean you abandon it and you look at something else or, or what does that mean for you that is a great question and i wish i had a great answer um because i have spent a lot of time trying to find that intermediate case right so um and there are hybrid models out there and they all sort of feel wrong to me and and i don't want to go into a great length about each one but i've tried to do that and i have failed um but ultimately like i say one needs to be able to explain the phenomena that mon does predict correctly and there is a lot of that and it does not sit well with the normal dark matter picture i mean you, know, you can find people who say oh yeah i i can do that but no i've been through that if i thought i could explain it easily with dark matter i would do so um i am still personally way more comfortable with that cuz basically that's what i grew up with um and i would also love to stop having this argument with people it gets old um but it's it's just not true um it is very hard to explain uh the phenomenology of galaxies and a lot of other things with our conventional notions of non-baryonic cold dark matter just some new particle that's not good enough because what we see in the data is a clear connection between the distribution of the stuff we see and the dynamics that we get and so the dark matter knows uh what the normal matter is doing there needs to be some direct link between them that is way stronger and more compelling than just gravity which is a really weak um force it's it doesn't organize things and so so to give you an example a lot of times i will make this point oh the the baryonic tail is wagging the dark matter dog that doesn't make sense because uh, the basically you can have a dark matter distribution that does what you need it to do but you can only do that cuz you don't know you can't see it so you just say oh it is whatever i need it to be you can't predict it and so the basically the luminous matter is telling the dark matter what to do that doesn't make sense um cuz there's a lot more dark matter so people say oh well dark matter tells the luminous matter what to do as like okay that sounds wise but actually it's stupid because you cannot use that statement to construct a model that predicts anything successfully i know i've tried i've tried really hard um And so it's really the difference between um taking some data and fitting it. That's easy. I've also done that. You can always find a dark matter model that fits once you're told what the data is. The challenging thing is to make a model that predicts what we see in advance. Uh and that nobody has demonstrated so far. Hmm. Does the fact that we can't use something to predict it mean it's not true or does it just mean we just can't predict it? Well, so no, and that's one of the frustrating things. So at one point, oh, geez, almost a decade ago now, I wrote a review in which I said that the 
two things were incommensurate, and they really are incommensurate. Um, so yeah, just because something can't predict it doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, on the other hand, that something does predict it, we usually take to be an indication it might be right. Um, and that is basically the answer to the question you posed is what would I do next? Well, that's what I've been trying to do. And what I've been trying to get other people to do is like, okay, I am open to an, a dark matter interpretation, but you actually have to demonstrate how this Mond-like force law follows from that. I have not been able to do that in a satisfactory model. Um, in fact, I thought at several points in my career I had done it, and I realized I had assumed something along the way that made it so. It was basically a tautology. Um, and I see lots of models being published that say, oh, yeah, we do this. And I look at them and it's like, oh, yeah, I made that tautology 20 years ago. You're just making the same mistake. Um, and, you know, so one has to actually demonstrate that with a satisfactory model. And that's a much higher standard than it sounds. Um, and people are not doing that in large part because they're already convinced it has to be dark matter. And so there's a very low bar um, to trip over to say, oh, yeah, I got that right. Can you give me an example of that? Uh, so the standard dark matter halo is this thing called an NFW halo that specifies a particular density profile. Um, and it has its problems. But if you take that and the stellar mass halo mass relation that people think work and put some bunch of exponential disks in there, which is the standard sort of approximation we use for the luminous parts of galaxies, then it almost adds up to something that I call the radial acceleration relation, um, which is the sort of manifestation of MOND in a conventional sense. If I didn't know about MOND, then I could still say this relation is there in the data and it happens to look exactly like MOND, but let's do it some other way. And that, that modeling procedure I just described almost works. Um, and so if you don't look too closely, then it's like, oh, that's fine. And you go on your merry way. Um, but it has some assumptions built into it, like that stellar mass, halo mass relation, a, a relation between how big the dark matter is, halo is for a galaxy of a given stellar mass. Um, that's not native. We already had to fit that to data. And in fact, that was one of the things that gave me problems with the dark matter paradigm in the first place, is that the obvious thing to uh, assume was that there's a one-to-one -one relation. You know, basically, there's a fixed ratio between the amount of dark matter and the amount of luminous matter. Uh, and that is such an obvious thing uh, to assume that we assumed it all through the 1990s, and we fought really hard to not do that, right? We did not want to abandon that. Uh, and by the turn of the century, we realized that we had to do so. And one of the reasons is the kind of data that we've just been talking about, that it simply doesn't work. And so if you now, 20 years later, make a model that assumes um, that there is some magic stellar mass, halo mass relation, well, you're already assuming a large part of the answer that was established as something that didn't work a long time ago. Um, it's just been long enough we've forgotten that, that we've granted ourselves this rolling fudge factor. Um, even after that, it still doesn't work right. But I, I mentioned this particular case because um, 
Julio Navarro, who's the N in NFW Halos, built exactly a model like this like seven years ago now. And it's like, and, and said it worked. And I'm like, didn't I try that? And sure enough, I went back and looked. And, and the last time I had touched the files was in 2000. But it was exactly the same kind of model. And I had dismissed it as not working. And the reason was what I just described, because I assumed something different about the ratio between luminous and dark matter. Well, I could update that, and then I could reproduce his result. But I was just it's another tautology, right? I was choosing a relation between the mass of the dark matter halo and the luminous mass that made it so. Um, and that kind of thing is now so deeply buried in our psyches, it is very hard, right? We've gotten way, way deep in this rabbit hole. You know, once you're down a rabbit hole, you don't want to change, right? It's But I've spoken to two people today who have done exactly that, who have changed, right, but in different directions. So, so people do change. They do look at the evidence of change, but you've gone different ways. <laughs> fair, fair. You know, some of us do, but it's actually a minority in my experience. Um, and it's it's even more complicated than that, because for the most part in in the community, I think, like for me, dark matter was something, oh yeah, we need that uh, when we make galaxies. I wasn't really concerned about that. I knew it was an element, but I was specifically trying to understand these low surface brightness galaxies. Um, and I did not care one way or another about there being dark matter. It was just one of the ingredients that goes into these models. Um, and so the data made me think carefully about that in a way that I simply hadn't been obliged to do before that. Uh, and I think that's where most people are. It's not that they, uh, they're simply not challenged to change their minds. It's not that important to what they're doing uh, day by day. And the same thing for cosmology. Um, you know, if Mond is correct, then we do not understand a lot of the things that we think we understand in terms of uh, our modern Lambda CDM cosmology. And, you know, putting on a cosmologist hat, I, I get why we arrived at the model we are at. And there are a lot of compelling reasons for that. Um, you know, putting on a Mond hat, I'm like, well, yeah, you got this invisible mass plus now this dark energy. And, you know, <laughs> these are the sort of ancillary hypotheses or, or tooth fairies, if you want, that you have to invoke when a theory is on its last legs. And it's conceivable that we're doing that in order to use the theory to approximate some deeper unknown theory that hopefully would encompass both general relativity and Mond. But we don't really have that theory and there aren't really any people working on it. And so who knows, you know, maybe it's impossible, but um, we haven't really tried that hard. I wondered if Idranil thought that we do still need something else, something that isn't dark matter to explain the way that things are. Well, if you look at scales smaller than a, than a megaparsec and uh, leave aside the cosmological tensions for a moment, then um, for the galaxy scales and... Um, and, and the larger cluster scales, then uh, I think you probably do need something else, as in you need some adjustments to the properties of the dark matter so it doesn't cluster so efficiently. And in terms of the uh, tightness of the radial acceleration relation, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how that would arise. There may be, for example, a hidden or a, 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 
maybe an unknown interaction between the dark matter and the baryons, uh, maybe, uh, that helps to keep the two in sort of line and following the RAR, maybe. Um, so yeah, there, there is some chance that you, you need some additional ingredients. In fact, it's very likely because, um, for example, if dark matter reached the very high central densities that are predicted, um, many problems would arise observationally, uh, including the rotation speeds of galaxy bars in the centers of galaxies becoming slowed down by a sort of gravitational friction against the dark matter, um, which doesn't really happen. Um, but uh, I, I do think that, uh, yeah, there, there's a decent chance. Um, you almost certainly do need some additional thing. It can't be purely the Lambda CDM model, even on the galaxy scales. Um, yeah. But the basic picture of the dark matter halos plus the an inverse square gravity law uh, being the, the main sort of things that, main, main thing that's going on, that sh- I think is probably correct. Um, it, it just it might need to be uh, tweaked in some way. What could possibly bring Mond back into your kind of like research area? Oh, yeah, no, I will look at it again. So uh, the original Mond field equations have been falsified in high significance. On, on the galaxy scales, uh, if uh, additional tests of the so-called uh, dynamical friction may help, to clarify if, if there is dark matter. So there have been some studies recently which show that um, essentially as the large Magellanic cloud is mo- orbiting the Milky Way, it, it seems to have experienced dynamical friction. Um, but uh, studies to try and clarify like this issue further uh, and also sort of how much the Milky Way disk has recoiled due to the large Magellanic cloud, which places a limit, like it, it measures the mass ratio between the two, right? Um, and that's actually very different to the ratio of visible mass. Uh, it's it's more in line with uh, the ratio it's expected in the dark matter picture. Um, but uh, measurements like this, uh, in, in theory, if someone were to, uh, if, if these measurements would somehow to turn out to be not correct, and actually the mass ratio between the Milky Way and the LMC is about 1 to 20-ish, which is the ratio of the visible mass instead of the one to five ratio that's observed and also more or less expected in the standard model, um, then uh, that would obviously provide compelling evidence that galaxies are purely baryonic uh, in theory. Uh, that, that couldn't happen. Um, and uh, things like if you manage to prove that even such a massive galaxy as LMC, or something that should be so massive in the standard model, given its stellar mass and typical sort of stellar to dark halo mappings, um, if that experience like no dynamical friction uh, or you place a really tight upper limit on it. So th- there's some ways in, in theory that could um, maybe uh, show that you don't have much dark matter around galaxies, um, which in turn would um, show that, well, if you have to make do with the visible mass, you'd have to modify the, the law of, of gravity or invent additional forces in, in some way, there is a very high likelihood of additional problems with the Lambda CDM on even larger scales with, with regards to the Hubble tension. Uh, and uh, this is what I'm working on now, the idea that structure formation uh, and perhaps the law of gravity most likely needs to be modified on much larger scales of uh, several dozen, like up hundreds of megaparsec. 
uh, and uh, so hundreds of millions of light years. And what uh, might happen there is if you form a significant local underdensity, uh, well, you'd form overdensities as well. But if we happen to be living in an underdensity, then locally the universe would appear to be expanding faster than it kind of actually is because there's additional outward motion due to the void. Um, and that may solve the Hubble tension. Um, we're actually able to recently use a model along those lines that we published in 2020. Um, it, it sort of had uh, parameters for like how the void should work. Um, but using that model, we were able to correctly predict the uh, a, a key feature of the velocity field in the local universe that was subsequently measured last year. And that's the so-called bulk flow curve. Um, so there, there's uh, definitely, and, and I should say the bulk flows are also much faster than expected in the standard cosmological model. So uh, there's definitely a high chance of some modifications to Lambda CDM. Um, I, I don't want people to think that it's sort of going to, to work uh, completely without any further modifications. Um, that's, that's not really possible given the current evidence, um, but um, that doesn't mean uh, that the um, modern field equations provide a viable alternative. Let's have one final thought from Stacy. We do not understand how the universe works. We think we do, but neither, we, we don't know what the dark matter is. We just know we need it. Um, and we don't really understand how Mon can be true as a theory. And I think that's a wonderful thing, right? There's still fundamental physics to be learned about how the universe works. And so... Um, it's not like science is over. It's not like we're filling in the last few decimal points of, of everything. There's fundamental issues here still to be addressed. And so that's a good thing. We're, we're not done here. I'd like to thank Stacy and Idranil for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And if you'd like to know more, I can highly recommend Keith Cooper's feature on the Physics World website. It is, of course, the first of three this one entitled Cosmic Combat, Delving into the Battle Between Dark Matter and Modified Gravity. The second, coming soon, will explore some of Dark Matter's recent successes and the serious challenges that it's also facing. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. Physics World. <laughs>